Baseball fans, BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season. Step into the batter's box for BetMGM's Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. Pick an area of the strike zone and take your best swing. If you get a single, double, triple, or home run, you'll receive a prize. Smash a home run to collect a bonus bet on us. Just log into your BetMGM sports account to get started. Then visit your promotions section to access the Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. There's nothing more exciting than going yard with the king of sportsbooks. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Must be 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In partnership with MGM Northfield Park. I'm going out with the girls this weekend. Nails, done. Outfit, stunner. And my skin, I know it's going to be glowing because I glammed up my shower routine with new Olay Indulgent Moisture Body Wash. It smells so luxurious and deeply moisturizes with its super rich, creamy lather that's bursting with vitamin B3 complex. So my skin glows and my confidence grows. Try new Olay Indulgent Moisture Body Wash for glowing skin in just 14 days. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code, a lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM. Let's create. Welcome back. Once again, this is the crew from It's Going Down, squatting the airwaves of It Could Happen Here. On today's show, we're going to look at the growing crisis around homelessness and how the state has moved to address it with brutal sweeps and new laws that target the poor. In the wake of the global COVID-19 pandemic, the U.S. housing crisis deepened and homelessness grew. Following the George Floyd Rebellion, Republicans pointed to a rising murder rate during the 2022 election cycle, along with growing encampments of the houseless as examples of rampant democratic mismanagement and the supposed end result of defunding the police. In reality, two years after the uprising, both funding for the police has only increased along with the number of people killed per year by law enforcement, while growing police budgets have had no impact on crime. Meanwhile, both parties have embraced a draconian crackdown on the houseless, as a slew of new laws target sleeping outside and police move against encampments, even in the midst of extreme weather. But a new wave of resistance is also materializing, as communities mobilize to provide mutual aid, fight for access to housing, and resist sweeps of encampments. On today's episode, we investigate the history of these struggles and how these tactics, ranging from squatting to encampment defense, are spreading across the social terrain as the current crisis deepens and more people find themselves out in the cold. But to kick things off, let's talk about state strategy. Just why are they carrying out these sweeps? I think one of the first things that comes to mind for me is how this behavior from like the Democrats or like liberals or progressives 
isn't an anomaly, that they are, you know, that their role is facilitating a capitalist state just with slightly different tactics than the Republicans. But basically, they're trying to do that. What they're doing, which is basically demonizing uh, unhoused people and sort of pushes the blame of um what's going on of the failings basically of our culture onto these individuals that are unhoused rather than on their failures as like mayors of democratic cities or whatever um and the kind of logical outcome of class-based capitalist extractive society and when they can just make it that instead of it being like a social problem that people are unhoused they can make it these bad homeless people and they're dirty and crime or whatever and just kind of try and eliminate that to protect their image. But I think it's just a way of like scapegoating a built in problem with how they operate. Um, and actually it's something that makes me think, especially thinking about San Francisco in terms of like precedence for this. It makes me think about the ugly laws, which, um, for anyone who doesn't know, that was something kind of in the 1800s. San Francisco implemented it in 1867, which was a law, um, forbidding people who were kind of like unsightly according to this law. Um, to not be seen in the street. So if people were physically disabled or they were begging or even limping, there were laws targeting them. And part of it even says that anything that's triggering like disgust or guilt is like to not be seen. And I feel like it's a really similar thing that's happening now. And so, yeah, progressive liberals, they do this. <laughs> I'm glad that you brought up ableism because I think that this ties in real, real well into that. So we live in essentially like an extremely ableist society that says if you don't work, you die. And I think criminalizing homeless people is a huge part of that. So, I mean, really think about it. We have to rent our bodies to corporations so we can get money to pay rent to landlords. Essentially, we're being paid a tax to live. But how do you force people? How else do you get people to do the drudgery that we have to do at work if you don't like show them the consequences of that? So like if they were nice to homeless people, if they were like, oh, here's a free home, then that creates a precedent of like, oh, you cannot work and have a home. So like they don't want to do that. So I mean, I think one thing that people don't talk about, like homelessness is ex existing. I think it's like a way to like scare us into essentially doing these things that we don't want to do to live because you're constantly reminding us of like, oh, you want a quiet quit? You want to go on a strike? This is what your life could be. You're going to be homeless. And not only that, we're going to make it so that you can't exist as a homeless person in this society. Because if people like if you go to New York right now, all these uh, brunchy folks, they eat on the sidewalk. They have all these like houses built up on the sidewalk. People are drinking mimosas, but you can't have a tan. But what are these makeshift things? So, I mean, it, it goes to show you like it's not even like the idea of taking public space. It's like who's taking public space. And if it's somebody who's not serving capitalism, you can't take a public space. The housing question, to really understand the connection with Democrats and capitalist understandings of housing, we have to think about how housing, how, you know, property structures space, right? How capitalism structures space. And so, you know, when I was thinking about this before we were recording, I keep going back to um, James Scott, Seeing Like a State, which is, you know, an amazing book. If people haven't read it, absolutely pick up a copy. But in the first, you know, couple of chapters, one of the things that he talks about is land enclosure. And he's talking about this structure specifically in France in which sort of towards the end of monarchism, there was an attempt to actually create a tax regime where individuals were taxed. And to do that, individuals had to exist legally, but they didn't at that point. They existed as communities within feudalism. They paid taxes as communities. They held land as communities. When the French government went to these towns to figure out who owned what, 
what they found was that every single community broke up their understanding of land differently. And that it wasn't really based on ownership, it was based on use. And so they had to standardize all of that. And to do that, they had to fragment the commons. They had to sit there and go, you own this piece of land and you own this piece of land. They did that. They made maps. And they went back two years later. They realized nobody was following the maps. But what they did was they started charging taxes based on the maps. And so people had to start making money on the land to pay the taxes based on the maps that have nothing to do with their lives, right? And what that was was the creation of property, right? Because when we think about property, you know, there's this fiction of, you know, stateless capitalism, right? You have like Murray Rothbard, Ayn Rand types who are talking about, you know, capitalism can exist without the state. But really, we can see the fallacy of that when we look at the, at the question of property, right? The question of exclusion from property or exclusion from space. Um, not only is it fragmenting public space, but we start to look at um, the way that all of a sudden property has to exist, right? And, and so in the Rust Belt, for example, after the, the financial crisis, cities, Cleveland, Buffalo, Detroit, got all this money from the federal government to tear houses down. And they were tearing down like 50 houses a day in these cities, right, for years on end. And these are cities that have people that don't have housing. And so you, you sit there and you go, well, why are they tearing houses down? When there are people that don't have housing, right? When there's more vacant houses than there are people without housing, how can you justify tearing the houses down? And the answer was, we need to create a real estate market again. Because if you allow people to just squat, there's no reason to pay for housing. If there's no reason to pay for housing, housing ceases to be a commodity, right? Like this is actually the important part, that capitalism has to function through that exclusion of access. Otherwise, commodities can't have the scarcity necessary to allow them to be priced, right? There can't be a supply that is lower than a demand, for example, unless you artificially limit supply, right? And so when we really see this, we can really see not just the way that capitalism sort of atomizes us, right? Creates um, us as people who live in individual housing units, as opposed to as people who conceive of ourselves as living in communities. Um, but it also really comes to highlight the relationship between the state and the police and capital. And how we have to understand capital as a content of the state. It is a definition of life that is imposed through policing purely and can't exist outside of that, right? It's the fallacy of quote unquote anarcho-capitalism, which isn't a thing that really exists for this exact reason, right? And so when we're looking at why are Democrats engaging in techniques that involve pushing people off the streets, this is exactly why. It's a capitalist political party. They're trying to maintain property. They're trying to maintain property value, right? And this is why you see this happen in cities where gentrification is really horrible at a much ha at a much faster clip than you see it in cities where there's like open housing stock. That really makes me think about the beginning of like uh, workhouses in England in the 1830s and the poor law reforms. And it goes back to what you were saying more about um just that making it really undesirable to be poor, you know, like needing a group of people who are in that position and that workhouses were something that were introduced by liberals, progressives, you know, like this as a form of like changing the sort of poor relief system. So instead of giving people money so that they could be supported and stay with their families or whatever, people were put into these institutions where they're separated from their kids, from their husbands and wives or whatever. And it's meant to be so undesirable that you would only seek it if you were sort of desperately needed it or whatever, um, as a way to like save on taxes for like money to people basically. It's really fucked up. And it's like this was part of a sort of social reform, progressive like project. And I think we see echoes of that in this. 
The other thing that I wanted to bring up is like you talked about atomizing and isolating and like how capitalism does that. One thing that I think about specifically in New York is that homeless encampments do offer this radical idea of like what it looks like to take back a public space and to collectively like meet together, you know? And like, that's the other thing that I was thinking about last night when I was high, this whole idea of what happens if we just allow homeless encampments to spread and take over, then people who are not homeless start interacting with homeless people as we do, like people in the city do. Then you form these connections and these relationships, and then it becomes perfectly normal for people to take over public spaces. And then what does that mean? Then we have to provide services in public spaces like bathrooms and showers because the public would start requesting and like asking for these things the more of a relationship they form with homeless folks so i think part of the 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 cleaning which is with the term eric adams is used which is absolutely disgusting in terms of like moving homeless people the whole i think a huge part of it is also just like destroying the notion that we own public spaces like you do not own a public space and we want to let you know that and we want you out um so i think that really and, and the addition aspect of that, too, is like when you look at homelessness in New York, like a huge chunk of it are like black people, too. So there's like a racial component of it, too, when you really want to add it. This whole idea of like black people are not allowed to take up space. And then specifically, if you're homeless, you're not allowed to take up public space. So I wanted to bring that in. It's like very much related to work, but also just related to the idea that the government owns everything and corporations own everything, including the spaces that we exist in. Well, speaking of corporations owning everything, here's some words from our sponsors. Baseball fans, BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season. Step into the batter's box for BetMGM's Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. Pick an area of the strike zone and take your best swing. If you get a single, double, triple, or home run, you'll receive a prize. Smash a home run to collect a bonus bet on us. Just log into your BetMGM sports account to get started. Then visit your promotions section to access the Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. There's nothing more exciting than going yard with the king of sportsbooks. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Must be 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Glow with your best skin. Be confident in your skin. Be brave in your skin. With Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash, cover your skin in layers of rich moisturizers and vitamin B3 complex, transforming your skin from dry and dull to moisturized and smooth in just 14 days. Feel the best in your skin and glow with confidence all pride. Olay Body is a proud sponsor and supporter of iHeartRadio and PNG's Can't Cancel Pride, raising funds and support for the LGBTQ community. Olay Body wants you to feel empowered to live with confidence in your own skin. Not just all month, but all year long. And when you feel the best in your skin, you can do anything. So this pride, glow with confidence with the help of Olay Body. Check out Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash online or at your favorite retailer. Happy Pride! You're probably careful with your personal information. But what about the other places that have it? Like the doctor's office that mixed up your files. They have your social security number. The power company that mistakenly cut your service has your payment info and last three addresses. And the hotel that lost your reservation has your passport info. 
Your information is in endless places out of your control. Any one of them could accidentally expose you to hackers and identity theft through lax security, breaches, or simple mistakes. But LifeLock monitors millions of data points every second and alerts you to a wide range of threats. If your identity is stolen, a U.S.-based restoration specialist will fix it, guaranteed, or your money back. With plans covering up to $3 million for stolen funds and expenses. Mistakes happen. Don't let not having protection be one of them. Save up to 40% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 40%. Terms apply. Across the U.S., in large cities often controlled by Democrats, a war on the poor, and specifically on encampments of houseless people, has been increasingly waged over the past year. In San Francisco, the city's mayor, London Breed, recently declared it was time to, quote, be less tolerant of all the bullshit that has destroyed our city, in an effort to ramp up police harassment of the poor and unhoused. In Portland, city officials openly toyed with the idea of forcing, quote, up to 3,000 homeless people into massive temporary shelters staffed by the Oregon National Guard. While in California, the Democratic governor, Gavin Newsom, has pushed for, quote, care courts, which threaten to place those who do not complete state directives under involuntary hospitalization, a policy which mirrors efforts already underway in New York. Bans against camping, panhandling, sleeping in one's car have also proliferated. Last spring, for instance, Tennessee made it a felony to camp on public-owned land. In Missouri, those caught sleeping on state property could now get jail time and fines under a new law that just went into effect on January 1st. Other new laws outlaw encampments in LA next to schools and forbid houseless folks from sleeping on public transit in New York. In the progressive bastion of Asheville, North Carolina, over a dozen mutual aid organizers also now face trumped-up charges of felony littering for supporting protests against sweeps of encampments. This shift in many liberal cities to criminalize, attack, and ban encampments shows just how much the Democratic Party has continued to move to the right while embracing Republicans' line on combating rising crime. Instead of mobilizing the state's forces to house people and meet their most basic needs in a period of mass pandemic and a growing housing crisis, liberal governments across the country have instead mobilized their forces to attack some of the most vulnerable. Want to know more about what's driving these ongoing attacks on the houseless and how it relates to the housing crisis itself? We sat down with Gifford Hartman, a longtime radical organizer in the Bay Area and a former squatter. Movements arise, like say the George Floyd uprising, and um, there's some changes, there's some um, movement towards reforms to police brutality and things like that, but then there's kind of a, a backlash. And I think right now we're kind of suffering through a backlash, and I think that's kind of a pattern that happens is um, there's pushback, kind of penal reform, trying to rein the police in a little bit, and then the kind of the backlash means just the police have more power and they have more power to really kind of brutalize unhoused people. And I think we're living through that right now. I think the the trends go, you know, like back and forth and the pendulum has swung in the direction where right now in San Francisco there's constant sweeps of tents and unhoused people living on the streets. There's a lot of media support given to that, and it's kind of like, as I said, the tail wags the dog, and then they start doing all this stuff, and the pushback hasn't really, activism hasn't really been able to kind of stand up to that and stop it or even challenge it right now, at least what I see. Booms happen and property values go up and vacancies go to almost zero, the cops crack down harder. 
And I think there have been periods, at least in my lifetime, um, here in the Bay Area, where there's kind of a lull or there's a bottom of the trough when maybe there's more vacancies, a little bit more wiggle room, the cops quite, aren't quite so brutal. But when things are peaking or when the economy's, you know, in its dynamic kind of high points, that's where I see the repression is the worst because there's more people to complain. There's more people whose, you know, values are tied to property and who are more willing to push the cops to brutalize unhoused people. And, um, but you know, right now it's kind of, um, fraying because there's a lot of tech layoffs. Yet the agenda of sweeping tents and unhoused people off the streets is kind of still at kind of a rapid pace. So I don't know how much longer it'll last, but right now it's at a pretty high point. As we speak, the weather's awful and the sweeps haven't really stopped and there aren't enough shelter beds to house all the unhoused folks. So it's really a crisis. It's not only just a, you know, a human crisis, but it's a health crisis because people out in the cold rain are more vulnerable to getting sick and dying. And it's, it should be the time where we're doing the opposite. We're making sure everybody's housed and it just certainly isn't happening. Even though San Francisco, the mayors have been Democrats, I, I believe since the mid sixties, the Democrats aren't a monolith and they're not all progressive. And even the progressive ones aren't that good. But the ones that are in power now, like Mayor um, London Breed, are moderates. And um, they really are more believe in the police more. And they believe in using police for social crimes. And when they're not moderates, it's a little less bad, but it's not better. It's just less bad. I, I don't know if that really makes sense. Because I, I don't think there's ever been a political regime in San Francisco that wasn't pro-cop. You know, everybody loves the cops. Everybody co- sees the cops as... Um, ways to enforce the social values of society, which are private property and all that. And it just never stops. It just depends how brutal they are. And it, again, as I said earlier, it goes through waves. And presently, we're in a brutal wave. And the only alternative to that is a less brutal wave. And so my opinion, there's never a time when the cops don't, you know, run rapid. But just right now, but right now, they're actually at the high point that they've been in a long time. And now we speak with Javier from the National Coalition on Homelessness in San Francisco. We talk about the current wave of attacks against houseless people in big cities and how they mirror historic attempts at policing and repressing the poor. The income that you need to rent a two-bedroom apartment by the city's own estimation, you need an hourly wage of about sixty-one fifty to have an apartment like that. So the income gap is becoming more evident than ever nowadays. There's a 9% increase in homelessness for every $100 increase in rent. So it's like if healthcare, housing, education all gets more expensive, but wages don't go up, people are going to lose their housing. Um, so I think people need to understand and how similar we are to the unhoused population and how important it is to recognize that we should have solidarity with each other. Because if we're fighting against each other, then guess who's winning? The millionaires and the billionaires. Hmm? We're suing the city because when they do these sweeps, they're taking people's belongings, which is illegal search and seizure, and cruel and unusual punishment because the shelter that they're offering a lot of times isn't adequate for the folks um, who are being swept. We're looking for permanent supportive housing for folks, and it's not there. And if you're telling people that they have to move across the street every day in the morning, then it kind of shows, I think, a social and kind of cultural understanding that mirrors the the ugly laws people uh, had in place, especially in America, for a long time, which is homeless people are not supposed to be seen 
and they're supposed to be criminalized. And speaking of things that probably shouldn't be seen, again, some words from our sponsors. Baseball fans, BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season. Step into the batter's box for BetMGM's Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. Pick an area of the strike zone and take your best swing. If you get a single, double, triple, or home run, you'll receive a prize. Smash a home run to collect a bonus bet on us. Just log into your BetMGM sports account to get started. Then visit your promotions section to access the Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. There's nothing more exciting than going yard with the king of sportsbooks. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Must be 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Glow with your best skin. Be confident in your skin. Be brave in your skin. With Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash, cover your skin in layers of rich moisturizers and vitamin B3 complex, transforming your skin from dry and dull to moisturized and smooth in just 14 days. Feel the best in your skin and glow with confidence all pride. Olay Body is a proud sponsor and supporter of iHeartRadio and PNG's Can't Cancel Pride, raising funds and support for the LGBTQ community. Olay Body wants you to feel empowered to live with confidence in your own skin. Not just all month, but all year long. And when you feel the best in your skin, you can do anything. So this pride, glow with confidence with the help of Olay Body. Check out Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash online or at your favorite retailer. Happy Pride! This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From resisting sweeps, setting up autonomous warming centers, to taking over vacant buildings, over the past few years, there's been a wide array of expressions of solidarity, direct action, and mutual aid in the face of attempts by the state to displace and destroy the lives of houseless people across the U.S. But these projects and actions haven't come out of nowhere. Building on the radical history of groups in the Bay Area such as the Diggers and the White Panthers, who set up free stores, grocery programs, and squatted buildings. Starting in the 1980s out of the anti-nuclear movement, peace activists began sharing free vegan food in a protest of the U.S. war budget under the banner Food Not Bombs. 
in the late 1980s, Food Not Bombs in San Francisco faced over 1,000 arrests for sharing free food publicly and taking part in demonstrations. Soon another group, Homes Not Jails, evolved out of the same scene and began to open up and squat vacant housing, part of a wave of other houseless activist groups that sprouted nationwide, following the economic recession of the 1980s. Chapters of Homes Not Jails worked to open squats weekly to covertly house people, while also organizing public housing takeovers, which thrust squatting into the spotlight of the mass media. Again, here's Gifford Hartman talking about squatting in the 1990s. There had been a wave of um, really successful squats in the 1970s. One group was called the White Panthers that did it in the Lower Haight neighborhood, and they were modeled on the Black Panthers. So they actually squatted, but actually created community programs for things like food distribution. They defended their squats. They fortified their squats. And that was a tradition that kind of preceded my period of squatting. But so there were both looking at the squatting in Europe, but also the previous generations doing it here in San Francisco. Um, I moved to the Bay Area in 1986. I lived in Berkeley for most of the beginning of the years I was here. From the end of World War II, in the 1940s, the, the population in San Francisco peaked in the mid-20th century. And then it went down. Population decreased by 100,000. In the late 80s, there were still a lot of cracks in the surface of housing. And there was a lot of empty units. There's a lot of abandoned units, and there's a lot, a lot of ability to people to find squats. And I was part of that. And there were various times where I either wasn't working or had a part-time job, and I chose as a political act to squat. And I began doing that in the late 80s, but most of my success in squatting was in the early 90s. But then I kind of ran up against the contradiction. And groups like Homestead Jails were founded in 1992. I'd already been squatting, um, but then... There was another wave of repression. So in 1992, um, the former chief of police in San Francisco, Frank Jordan, got elected mayor. And by 1993, he was doing something called the Matrix Program. And the Matrix Program was very much like what Giuliani did in New York with his zero tolerance for broken windows, which is cops would get tough on quality of life crimes, which means like broken windows and graffiti. But it also included food, not bombs. Feedings were attacked by the police and squatters were even, myself included, were attacked and cleared out, even in a way that was not legal. When I succeeded, we squatted covertly. And when we didn't succeed, often we were aligned with groups that, like Homestead Jails, where they were a high profile group, very media savvy. Well, media savvy might be an overstatement. They were kind of had a media focus, and the media focus was often a double-edged sword. It brought popular understanding of the conditions of the housing stock, but also it was a way for the police to be telegraphed exactly what we were doing and to come down and crack down on our squads. Homes on Jails wouldn't be the last group to take over vacant homes for housing. In the mid-2000s, Take Back the Land, based out of Miami, Florida, work to block evictions and move unhoused families into foreclosed homes. In the present period, various grassroots groups have organized to stop the sweeping of houses and encampments. Crews in Olympia, Washington and Austin, Texas have been successful in organizing broad campaigns. In Minneapolis, groups have mobilized mass numbers to, at times, halt evictions. In the following interview, we speak with Christian and Post from Minneapolis on the ongoing battle with the city government and police to stop attacks and sweeps on their houseless neighbors. In the summer of 2020, when 
George Floyd was murdered by Minneapolis police, it raised a lot of people's awareness as to the way that our systems and practices in our city aren't really serving us. Um, I think there was there was a lot of work happening in Minneapolis in particular before that in regard to policing and the way that our systems do or do not serve people. Um, and then in 2020, the awareness just grew exponentially. And because that foundational path had been laid already, we had something to go with. Um, and we can see the direct line between what happened to George Floyd and to the community at George Floyd Square and the way that that also shows up in other spaces in our community, such as with our unhoused neighbors. We, we know that the majority of people that are living at encampments in Minneapolis are indigenous um, immigrant populations or um, black Americans. And so we can see that there is, you know, a specific need and also a real, um, a, you know, a disparity between. And a, and a direct through line to yeah. all of the um, oppression that, that 2020 kind of threw in the face of, of every, you know, I mean, person with a heart. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think, yeah. too, we started practicing a lot of mutual aid um, more like much bigger than we ever have historically in the summer of 2020. Um, we saw lots of people getting involved that were encampments um, throughout the city as there was uh, for some time because of COVID. Um, people were able to stay outside and couldn't be evicted as easily um, at that time. And we saw lots of community getting involved and doing mutual aid. Um, and that really helped build, I think, uh, a movement that is, you know, sort of beautifully disorganized in many ways because lots of people from lots of different walks of life coming together and showing up for each other. I mean, I think people started to become aware of the way that we are all connected to each other and that when, when we're taking care of each other, we're all happier. We're all safer. We're actually able to meet needs and the resources are there. It's a matter of the will. I cannot overemphasize enough how terrible the, uh, the boy mayor Frey has been since he took power here in so-called Minneapolis. You know, he ran on ending houselessness and was in majority funded by uh, developers during his campaign. And we've seen what ending houselessness means to Democrats. Uh, it basically means ending visible poverty and ending the lives of houseless people. But frankly, I mean, the number of evictions over the course of the last few years has just skyrocketed. And, you know, our so-called progressive politicians love to give some money to the nonprofit industrial complex and do their private public partnership. And then when there are people who are, quote unquote, uh, resistant to service, that's the, that's the phrase they love to use. They uh, have all of their excuses lined up so that they can just bulldoze people's houses and kick them out of the roofs that are keeping them warm and, and dry. And it's just been a really eye opening thing for a lot of people, I think, to see how our progressive quote-unquote establishment here has just fully committed to jackboot thuggery, all in the name of clearing the streets and making it so that people in their uh, kind of four-story mixed-use uh, condos can can have a, a beautiful view without having to see the poverty that that lifestyle necessitates. You know, in the summer of 2020, there were several council, at the time, council members who committed to um, defunding the police. However, that did not come to fruition. 
Um, since that time, there's been um, increases in the budget to policing in Minneapolis, no decreases, only increases that police haven't been able to spend their whole budget. And yet the city continues to pour more money into them. And what we're seeing happen is unhoused people come together to keep one another safe. And also so community is able to stay connected with them and, you know, will be in an encampment and then Various levels of discover of government will come in and displace them. And so the people don't have anywhere else to go. So they need to move to a new space together. So what's happening is not housing. What's happening is not even laying a foundation for somebody to be able to get the, the services or support that they may want or need. What's happening is displacement. When somebody hears about an eviction potentially happening, it becomes a situation that's it's almost it's almost kind of magical that people come together and it is kind of chaotic, but it always comes together. And we end up having whether it's people that are doing cop watch or are just neighbors like we had neighbors show up on the first day, the day that the quarry was planned to be evicted on December 28th. Um, I can't tell you how many different people that just live in that area we're coming up and asking questions and we're appalled at the response from the city um, because really that the quarry encampment was in a space that you could barely see it. You wouldn't know it was there if you didn't know it was there, you know, and yeah. uh, we're talking about by the last day, the day that it was evicted, there were eight people there and over 150 police officers. It was bonkers. And that extreme response is something that when you see it, you can't unsee it. And so we come together in what, you know, you get in where you fit in with whatever skills you have, whatever gifts you have, whatever time you have, you know, and a lot of us show up because we are people who have experienced other forms of trauma or have seen and experienced other forms of oppression, too. You can't unsee it once you do. In the last few years, mutual aid and autonomous disaster relief efforts have informed projects like Heater Block, the squatting of land for people displaced by climate change-fueled fires, and the setting up of autonomous warming centers in the middle of winter. In the winter of 2021, autonomous groups across Texas also mobilized when the state's electrical grid failed and hundreds of people tragically died due to lack of heat. Autonomous groups have also worked to directly house people. In the Los Angeles area, this has looked like houseless folks taking over homes owned by Caltrans and various groups in the Pacific Northwest occupying and demanding access to hotels in the dead of winter. In Philadelphia in 2020, housing activists squatted and then won the keys to homes for upwards of 50 unhoused families in the midst of the George Floyd Rebellion. And there have been other success stories as well. In Boise, Idaho, after months of ongoing protests by houseless folks and their supporters, the city was pushed to greenlight the building of hundreds of housing units. In Berkeley, California last summer, people once again tore down the fences surrounding People's Park and destroyed machines, stopping the destruction of the autonomous enclave once again. In Sacramento, California, houseless people and their supporters beat back an eviction attempt at Camp Resolution, a parking lot which is home to people living in their vehicles and RVs. Here's two Camp Resolution residents, Sharon and Satara, who speak on the deadly impact of sweeps. I think that the biggest thing is like being treated inhumanely, you know what I mean, or, or rudely or like you're an animal. They're very mean to people, you know what I mean? When they sweep you, they, they take people's stuff and just throw it out. No, don't matter if it matters to them or, you know what I mean, or, you know, 
which, you know, creates mental health issues for some people because people get traumatized from stuff like that. You know what I mean? You just coming in and the only places they have that they can call home or a, a place of shelter and, you know, stormy times like this, you know, they come and even now while it's raining and make them move and tell them, you know, they got to go throw their things out or, you know what I mean? Make them leave without it whatever they you know what i mean whatever no matter if it's important to them or not you know what i mean like i think that's the most messed up part because like i have a friend out here who who lost you know her child's ashes you know what i mean half the half of the people that we're at that we lose contact with and then every time they sweep that's another half and they're just diminishing people where people are where are people going they're just disappearing and before the you know people who do need like other help with other things, health things and stuff like that. The harm reduction people and stuff like that, that come out and, you know, give people things they need. You know what I mean? They'll, they'll move you, they move you around. Then you can't be found. People can That's die like that. Services. And people die like that all the time, especially, you know, when they move us around, sometimes we got to go to areas that are not necessarily safe, especially the women. You know what I mean? Women die out here all the time. They separate us. Camp resolution was formed because uh, this lot that we're on it was part of the original siting plan, and they spent $617,000 on this for a fence and a parking lot and promised folks that they would uh, that they were going to get them into little tiny houses or trailers so they can get back on their feet and get housing. They swept them off the lot. As soon as they were finished with this, they came, they came and viciously swept them off of the, proper, the other side of the property that we're on, and uh, put a fence up and promised those people and they got nothing and then didn't even bother to contact them or anything and just left those people hanging after they signed up for all the services and were denied and my sister-in-law was one of those people and she's a quadriplegic and she's still waiting for housing and we weren't going to have another winter of her being down and on the county side in the weather in the water so that's why we started it and it's we're here for safety so we can get back up on our feet. We're human beings. Not to mention, like, half, more than half the camp, you know, a majority of the camp, it, there are males that live here. So please don't get me wrong. But this is a camp of majority women, women you know what I mean, right. who out here, who live out here. And, you know, a lot of us, you know, we're homeless, but we're not we're not bums. You know what I mean? Like, we're not um, we have regular lives like everyone else. We have family. We have friends. You know what I mean? Like, we and we take care of each other. You know what I'm saying? Like. And a lot of us have been camping right here for for years. years. Some of us years up against the county and the city. Yep. You know <laughs> what I'm saying? But for every success, sweeps remain a daily constant in the United States. And many attempts to push back by houseless folks and their supporters are met with extreme resistance from law enforcement. So I'm curious what you all think. How can communities continue to organize for change in the face of this brutality? Something that comes to mind is just kind of um, more of some things that have already been happening, basically. Um, and I'm thinking of um, Echo Park that you brought up. Um, and the encampment at Echo Park was really interesting to me because um, it was that's a, a neighborhood in uh, L.A. And it grew to maybe sort of two to three hundred people living there. Um, and as it went on, it kind of like a sense of community developed pretty strongly there, um, with support from people in the neighborhood too. Um, and people had set up like a garden, a community kitchen. There were like meetings, even showers near the end. Like, 
um, it was actually kind of thriving. <laughs> like it was like doing well and people were like pretty like, uh, I don't know, politicized or like aware of like what's going on and talking about it and sharing with each other. Um, and yeah, people coming together to resist sweeps and like threats of sweeps of, of the park. Um, and the response to it was one of the most like heavy handed sort of disproportionate seeming things that I'd ever seen um, where they had been threatening, the city had been threatening that they were going to do a sweep and they were saying they were going to get everyone into housing. It's like this humanitarian um, offer of secure housing to people. Um, but they came with like 400 cops and like all the rest of like LAPD's full force, you know, with the helicopters and just like everything they blocked um entrances into echo park to stop supporters coming from out of the neighborhood um and basically yeah evicted people fought with people resisting um and then put a fence up very quickly like during this whole thing um and closed the park off and that fence is still up and that's like and then what is it now a year and a half or something these years um that that fence has been up um and something i think is like interesting about this example is i really think that the reason that response was so heavy-handed is because the very existence of it was disrupting this logic of like rent and landlordism and stuff like people were reclaiming the commons basically like reclaiming public space using it to meet their needs and this was incredibly threatening to the city and they needed to shut it down and sort of turn the park back into recreation middle class people basically um and i think you know what we've talked about already like um tom what you were talking about with like enclosure and stuff like i really see that these sweeps like this is such a just a continuation of this and echo park um in a really big way and what you were saying more about just like what happens when we challenge that logic being the most like threatening thing to them you know of just like what happens if it was just like this homeless camp survives and then another encampment another encampment and it basically disrupts everything we know about property and rent and everything anyway so I think just uh more of that <laughs> yeah I mean I would yeah I agree with you Sophie I think it's like more of what's happening like currently in New York there's still sweeps happening like um DHS Department of Homeless Services puts up these like um sweep notices um and the way it works is that when these sweeps, sweeps notices go up like there's a group of people who let each other know that a sweep is about to happen people show up to the people who are about to be swept. I hate that word swept. Oh my gosh, that's so disgusting. What can we use instead of swept? Um, treated badly by evil Eric Adams. I don't know. Maybe we could use that. Um, but anyway, so like, um, so people will go and talk to the people who are in the encampment who are going to be swept and ask them like, what type of support would you like? Like, do you want us to help you us move your stuff? Do you want us to stand, you know, it, it, when the cops and like, so the sanitation department comes usually during these cleanups and like throws away people's things. And because, you know, if you don't serve capitalism, your stuff, you don't matter. So definitely your stuff doesn't matter. One thing that has been happening is that people have been showing up for people who are about to be, um, have their things thrown out and either moving the things for them or supporting them or standing in the way from in front of the police or like documenting it. And I think that's like a huge way to just like show up right now. If you can, you sick leave, block out time on your calendar at work. If you know something happening down the street, like this is like something like you could do now. And I think that's really important. Like this is solidarity that we should show and we should show up for our comrades because they are on the ground of fighting for us having housing as a human right. And that's why we should show up for them and to support them. Another item that I wanted to bring up, I don't know if y'all heard about Anarchy Row, which happened last year, uh, where like SRG, which is a strategic response group, showed up. This is a counterterrorism group, y'all. Showed up to get people out of a uh, an encampment in Tompkins Square, which was deemed Anarchy Row. I think it was like five people. Five people! Brought in SRG or counterterrorism groups. It just goes to show you the extent to which like 
houses people taking a public space is a threat to I- the idea of property as we know it, is a, is a threat to capitalists, and is a threat to landlords like Eric Adams. Eric Adams is a landlord. I don't know if you all know that. This, the, New York, the New York City mayor is a landlord if you need to know anything to, as to why they're sweeping homeless people. Landlords run everything, and they have rats like Eric Adams because he had rats and he was supposed to pay a fine and he didn't pay a fine because he's a landlord. I guess just going back to that is like, yeah, show up for people now. Like the need now is like when sweeps are happening is for people to show up in place with people. And the other part of it, I want to say this, and this is a wild idea, but I've been thinking about it for a while. What if we all stop paying rent? What if we all did? What if we got together with all of our friends and stopped paying rent? And I know this is wild and I know some people might be like, oh, no, Marcella, we're going to get evicted. But what if we paid rent and we all fought the cops and they're trying to pay us when, when, when they're trying to evict all of us? So, like, that's another part of it is, like, showing up to people's evictions, trying to come up together to come up with a long strategy. Because houses people right now are fighting for us to, like, have housing as a human right. We can meet them on the other end and say, actually, we're not going to pay rent as long as you're doing this because we're that's like solidarity. When I'm thinking about how to resist displacement, you know, what I go back to is squatter movements that existed in Europe, right? Like the social center movements in the seventies and eighties. Um, but also squatting that happened in the Rust Belt in the two thousands, right? And like what was unique about those situations? Like others have, have existed obviously, but what was unique about those situations is that squatting became about more than just space. It also became about autonomy and self-defense, right? So in those situations, what would happen is in these Rust Belt squats, people would like lock down a whole street and take over a house. And then just that was just their space, <laughs> you know, and the cops just couldn't get back there or didn't want to get back there. Um, and some of those squats held out for years, like years and years and years. Um, and we see that in Europe, too. And so what that does, though, is it it accomplishes something really important, which I think we have to sort of shift in our discussions of this question, which is that the question isn't just about housing, the question's about space, right? And very specifically, how we understand space. So currently, when we talk about a neighborhood, or when city politicians talk about a neighborhood, they don't mean what I think a lot of us mean. Like, a lot of us, when we talk about our neighborhoods, we mean like our neighbors, right? The people that live around the corner, the old lady up the street that feeds the cats, like whatever it happens to be, you know, like you, you have a community that you live in, at least where I live. When city politicians talk about a neighborhood, what they mean is real estate. They mean this fragmented space of commodified housing where individual houses can just be slotted in and slotted out. And new residents could just be slotted in and slotted out. And the space becomes reduced down to its physical form, Right. And within all capitalist understandings of space, that is what happens. Space gets reduced down to the commodification of that space, right? And so when we're talking about that inscription into our spaces, you know, I was saying earlier, that doesn't occur without the ability to get arrested for trespassing. And so this becomes a fight against the police as much as it's a fight against housing, because at the end of the day, the enforcement of that structuring of space comes through the projection of police force into that space, right? Whether that's passive, things like surveillance, whether that's active, things like sending a counterterrorism team to evict five people from a park in Manhattan. And so as we're kind of like looking through this, we can take some interesting sort of examples. I mean, the Paris Commune had a whole discourse that talked just about how they were going to rebuild the city. Like, what is the city going to look like without property? How are we going to restructure our use of space? Who gets to decide how to use these big public spaces, right? 
these were the big discussions that were happening. The Situationists International had a whole discourse on building conceptual cities and avant-garde cities. And, you know, graffiti was a big part of that. Because what is graffiti? Graffiti is the marking of people's presence in space. Why do cities crack down on graffiti so hard? Every single time someone puts a tag up, that's a gap in police coverage that's being marked. Literally every single time. Right? And so when we're talking about these questions, we have to push this into a question of capitalism in general. But that makes it a question of the state. We can't talk about capitalism in isolation from that. And so we have to really talk about how our spaces are fragmented and the ways that things like even encampments or squats or things like this that are defended, that are able to be sort of preserved isn't the right word, are able to maintain their autonomy. Those become sort of the models of different ways to live in some ways, right? These become the places where people are experimenting with different types of living, whether it's by choice or not. Uh, but these are the spaces that get eliminated because of that specific dynamic, right? That they are fundamentally violating the entire concept of property in their very existence. And that's why we see the crackdowns happening the way that they are. Democrats are just as, you know, complicit in that as Republicans are. It's, it's functionally no different, especially after the George Floyd uprising, where you really see in a lot of democratic cities them hiring a lot more cops, giving them a lot more guns, like doing the same stuff that, that happened in more conservative cities, right? The gap is almost non-existent. That's going to do it for us. Once again, this has been the It's Going Down crew squatting the offices of It Could Happen Here. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you soon. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. High Five Casino. High Five Casino is a social casino with real prizes and big Vegas hits at highfivecasino.com. The hottest games right from Vegas, and all winnings go straight to your bank account. Hundreds of exclusive games, free daily rewards, and come back to get free coins every four hours. Only at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited. Play responsibly. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details at HighTheNumberFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino. I'm going out with the girls this weekend. Nails done. Outfit stunner. And my skin I know it's going to be glowing because I glammed up my shower routine with new Olay Indulgent Moisture Body Wash. It smells so luxurious and deeply moisturizes with its super rich, creamy lather that's bursting with vitamin B3 complex. So my skin glows and my confidence grows. Try new Olay Indulgent Moisture Body Wash for glowing skin in just 14 days. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop.